It's time for some cheap talk. You're listening to Trick Chat. Hello, kitties. Welcome to Cheap Talk. Today we are going to be discussing one of the best Cheap Trick albums, in my opinion. As you can tell, I'm going to be awfully jaded. We are looking at Cheap Trick's 1997 self-titled LP, Cheap Trick. And today we are joined, as always, by Mr. BJ Cramp. And we have a friend on the line. Would you care to introduce him, uh, BJ? On the show today we have Michael Butler, famous host of the Rock and Roll Geek Show, the longest-running podcast in existence. There right? you go. I wrote this down for you, didn't I, BJ? That's pretty good. No. Please write it down like I like, read it like I read, wrote it down. Please. <laughs> and Michael is a fan of the show, and so and also uh, I believe this is your favorite Cheap Trick album, right, Michael? Is that what you say? <clears throat> Thanks for having me on the show, Ken Mills. I really appreciate it. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Yeah. And so, BJ, thanks for going to bat to have me on the show. I really appreciate it from you too, friend. No problem. I thought it'd be fun. Yeah, this is my, this is one of my favorite albums of all time. I mean, everybody's goes, oh, how can it be possibly better than In Color or the first album or Heaven and I? I don't think it's. I don't think it's a better album than those, but it is my favorite Cheap Trick. I go between this one and Special One at times being my two favorites, only because. Well, I have my own reasons for thinking those are my favorites. Yeah, I understand yeah. what you mean about the difference between favorite and best. I yeah. think in the same terms. Like, you could say something's your favorite, but still acknowledge that it's not better, but it's just your personal favorite. You know? I think that if a casual fan, if to, turn, to try to educate a person on Cheap Trick who doesn't really know Cheap Trick, this would not be the album to do it. But I think it's a work of art, and it's one of my favorite albums of all time. I go, but like I said, I go between this one and Special One. I do another show called uh, uh, Good Clean Fun Sometime, and me and my friend Jasper will geek out on Cheap Trick Records. And I was telling him how great I think Special One is, and he was telling me that 1997 was a better album. And we had a dueling albums contest, <laughs> and he converted me to think that this album is actually better than Special One. But I go back and forth. Both albums are fantastic. Well, do me a favor. Give me a little bit of your Cheap Trick history. How did you become a Cheap Trick fan? In Jacksonville, Florida, in 1977, I went to a Foreigner concert. Uh, I think it was Foreigner's second album. Don't remember. I think it was Foreigner 2, whatever. And Cheap Trick opened up. I never heard of Cheap Trick before, and they, you know, they had this look. And I was like, wow, these guys are unbelievable. And so the next day I went out and bought In Color because it had just come out. They were touring for In Color, and uh, that was it, that as was you well it. know. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> All you have to do is see them once. 1977, I've seen them probably, I don't know, 200 times or so. I've seen them more times than I can count. I mean, I, they're the best band in the world, obviously. <laughs> Ah, you probably think Kiss is, but I would disagree. No, I love Kiss, no, too. To no, me, Cheap Trick are number one for me. <laughs> really? Well, for me, yeah. it's the Beatles. And, Beatles uh, aren't still going. Right, but that's that's where my musical tree starts. Everybody else is in the shade. So, uh, well, My musical tree actually starts with Kiss as well. Kiss mm-hmm. and probably Jethro Tull, because Jethro Tull, uh, Aqualung is the first album I ever had, but... My, uh, but still, the, the to me the requisite prerequisite. I don't know how you say that word. Requisite yes, prerequisite prerequisite. Thank mm-hmm. you, BJ, for an album being or for a band being the best band in the world. They have to still be playing, still have most of their original members, and still be putting out a regular records. So in that sense, Cheap Trick is the greatest band in the world. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Ken, for humoring me. 
no, no. It's <laughs> it's all opinions. We no, all have. No, no. Seriously, thank you for thank you for the great introduction, Ken, and thanks for having me on your show. All right. Not a problem. I love this album. I love this album. Well, then oh, you probably think the same about this album as, as I do. We probably have the exact same opinions on this record. Well, we just might because I think that it is right up there. Like a lot of people, when they talk about Cheap Trick, they usually talk about the first four or five albums as being their favorites. Yeah. To me, this fits very comfortably right in there. And for a band to be able to pull off this kind of, like you said, it was a piece of art. For for a band to to do this at that stage in, in their game is absolutely amazing. This album to me is has two things that you want in a great rock and roll album. Anger and and heartbreak. Mm-hmm. Every song, all the rocking songs on this album are angry and they're all about breaking up with this was somebody going through a divorce at this time when I don't this record know, was done? I always... No, it was. Uh, I think it was about the man about Ken Adamani mainly. They fired him in '95. Hmm. So this is the first thing. This is the first thing they did after. You know, he was their manager their entire the entire existence of the band basically. And what was the guy who took over that? That guy, the guy who took over for him, is suing them with Bunny now, right? I'm not sure if there might have been another guy in between. <clears throat> What's that guy's name? Is it Dan something? I can't uh, remember. Let me build. I ran into Rick Nielsen at Macworld in San Francisco uh-huh. right after, spe- after maybe a year after Special One. I think they might have been working. Uh, Rockford hadn't been released yet. And I, I was, oh my God, there's Rick Nielsen. I got to get an ID from him. I just happened to have my recording gear with me. Uh-huh. I got to get an ID from him. I ran up to Rick Nielsen. Rick Nielsen, oh, I'm a huge fan. Uh, special One, great album. Special One, great album. He goes, Hey, you hear that? And he was talking to his manager. This guy thinks Special One is a great album. And they kind of, he kind of, see, somebody thinks it's a good album. Wow. <laughs> and of course, I, I act like an idiot when I try to have a ca- casual conversation with them. Well, it's, you know, it happens. But as, yeah. as far as. That's uh, when I'm an idiot. No, no one's saying you're an idiot. Um, I am. Okay. All right. Well, uh, we're all idiots on this bus, so. There you go. A little Fireside Theater uh, reference there. There's a little Easter egg at the beginning of this album. If you put your CD in, and it doesn't work on a CD-ROM. At least I've never right. got it to work on a CD-ROM. If you put it in your CD player and instantly hit so that it starts rewinding. Yeah. But I've uh, never heard that. Is that the, the studio banter? It's little clips of music and stuff that yeah. Rick put together, I think. It's kind of like Rick making noises and yeah. little bits of music. And This album came with a hidden track zero, which is a 2 minute and 58 second montage of clips of songs on the album and studio banter. So, there you go. I wasn't just making it up, BJ. It's very strange. But I've never seen anybody else use a CD like that. So He's a genius. You know, we were discussing this is just one hell of an album, or one heaven of an album, if you're into heaven tonight. So uh, let's let's start with track one, the great anytime. I can feel your lips all around me. A wet kiss waiting to explode. Think about 
any time. PJ? The first time I ever heard this song, they did it live. I have still have the tickets up. I saw them December 27th, 96, before this album came out in Milwaukee, and they did Anytime, Wrong All Along, and Shelter at that show. Wow. And so, obviously, live, this was a very impressive song. I still can, I just, when I hear the song, I picture Robin pounding away, playing the rhythm, and just screaming into the mic, you know, on that chorus.
live it was really impressive. It's definitely one of my least favorite songs on the album, I would say. It doesn't really have that much of a hook that really connects with me. I think it's kind of Cheap Trick's alternative rock song. In fact, the intro and the intro, the drum intro and really the verse remind me a lot of the Afghan wigs. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them, but mm-hmm. yeah. there's an Afghan wig song called Gentleman that opens almost exactly the same way. It's really similar. Hmm. And the verse to this to Anytime is pretty similar like what an Afghan wig song would be. Um, I think I think it's a cool song, probably better live, but it's probably maybe in my bottom two or three uh, for the album. Michael Butler, what do you think of it? I agree with BJ. Uh, my favorites are not the hard rocking songs on this record. Actually, every song is is a good song on this record. I like them all, but yeah. my favorites on the are the ones that are the more melancholy songs. You know, the ones that are, that are kind of sad. But this song is a good rocking song. Probably fits as an opener. I would have chose a different song as an opener if I was there in you know part of the camp. But I like the tune still. Not a lot of hooks in it, but still good, good rocking tune. Yeah, there's a there's a quote I got from Mike Hayes from the book. This is Mike Hayes himself uh, mm-hmm. saying, "There's little evidence of the band's celebrated melodic style." That's what he says about the song, which I kind of agree with. I would what I that. like about this album, though is they seem to be not really uh, trying to please anybody on this record but themselves. It says in the book that Anytime came together in the studio. So I think this is one of those kind of songs that came out of, of a jam, you know? I'm thinking a lot of these songs came together in the studio. You have those Red Ant sessions? Yeah, well, yeah, I think a lot of that, that stuff was done... A, some of that stuff was done with Tom Werman, like, in 96 or whatever, or even my earlier. F- my friend actually signed this band to Red Ant... We uh, back when I was in this other band, and he would come to our shows and go, "Man, I just signed Cheap Trick," <laughs> and and you know what happened with the record label after yeah. that? And he lo- and my friend lost his job as well, and all that, but still. Yeah. And nice. at that time, I was I was kind of losing faith in Cheap Trick a little bit, you know, because some of their albums were were not as I don't know for some reason I just kind of fell out with Cheap Trick for a little while. And when I first heard this album, I said, "Ah, it's all right." And then I sat back and actually gave it a good <clears throat> listen, and now, it's like, like I said, it's one of my favorite albums of all time. I love concept albums. I'm not insinuating. Is this a concept album? Absolutely not, but in my head, it is, and I'll tell you why. Yeah, I kind of agree with you, but go ahead. I went through a divorce before uh-huh. this album ever came out. You were discussing, you, you had kind of lost some touch with Cheap Trick. I remember busted like busting on me, let's put it that way. It just didn't really hit like it should have and we had all been through the ups and downs of them trying to reach commercial success but uh, Woke Up With A Monster had its charms but again it wasn't the album that this was the seeds of this album are on there but this album is unique and to me like you said they weren't trying to please anybody it seemed like they were just being themselves they were kind of being that the band that recorded the first album in a way um when I hear this album, it, it to me sounds like it's it's about a divorce, somebody getting cleaned up and coming back, and all these things like this song, for example. Anytime you want to come, come over. I remember I had an ex-wife who would just show up at random times, and that's when she'd want to come in and you know just act like nothing had happened, and it was a very strange thing, you know. And it reminds me of this, and it leads to this really bizarre. Um, angry love if you know what I'm saying and this song kind of speaks to that sort of thing anytime you want to come come over 
Thanks for pouring your heart out, Ken. That was hey, really nice. Hey, that's what I do. That's what I do. But the performance on this, it, it sounds like almost live in the studio. Yeah. I think the I think the uh, the production on this record is fantastic. It is yeah, it's like great. the most most raw rock production. <coughs> I'm sure. Are we going to go over the bonus tracks on this record too? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll save my other thoughts then for that. Yeah, and Michael mentioned the production. Then we should talk. That was Ian Taylor produced this album. Mm-hmm. Who I think he engineered one on one. Right. And I think he produced "Dancing the Night Away" because that was recorded after "Next Position Please" was already done. That was one of the things where the record label kind of forced them to do it. And I think he produced Spring Break, or at least he engineered or worked with them on those songs too. So, you know, he, he had a history with the band before this. So let's move on to track two, Hard to Tell. Michael, what do you think of Hard to Tell? Uh, I like it. It's a good tune. I, can you play a little bit of it so I can remember how it goes? <laughs> Yeah, I love it. Again. <laughs> Again, not my favorite. It's a good good song. Uh, so hum the chorus for me, Ken. It's hard. It's, it's hard. so easy, baby. Yeah, that's this is a more it's of a classic. Actually, I lo- yeah. Thank you for jogging my. <laughs> I'll actually love this song. <laughs> Go on, you're saying. This is probably the closest to a classic cheap trick sounding song, in my opinion. I could say that, definitely. I could agree with that. BJ, what do you think? Great song. It's all hooks. You know? Yeah. I was Why gonna kind of do you do? I love that what part. Uh-huh. And that's like a like a bridge in the verse or whatever. It's, yeah, this is an awesome song. Great. I think that there's hooks all over this darn album. I think there's a yeah. p- little, cl- little part of this song, there's a guitar lick that is a little bit like this Beatles song. Uh, I don't know if it's titled The Fixing a Hole, but yeah. there's like a little guitar lick that, that's mm-hmm. reminiscent of that. Absolutely. And there are a few Beatlesisms on this album as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of times when I'm listening to it, I'll go like, well, that's very Beatle-like, you know, and so it just makes me love the album all that much more. But uh, again, another killer track. Was this ever performed live? Oh yeah, Excellent. I I saw them a lot around you know in like ninety seven, ninety eight. I saw them a bunch of times. Yeah, they did this song a lot. Was that the years that they did the three show? You know, the three the albums. The three were in ninety eight. Okay, this yeah. yeah, this was an amazing time to be a Cheap Trick fan. I mean, yeah. ninety six you had the box set. Yep. Then ninety seven you had this album. And then in 98, I saw them do the complete Budokan concert and the first three albums. Mm-hmm. It was crazy. Plus, it was <laughs> I went to all three of the album shows in yeah. San Francisco. They played at, the, uh, at this place, a Great American Music Hall, and it was so good. <laughs> well, yeah, they- I saw the three albums at, at Irving Plaza in New York three nights yeah. in a row. Crazy. And then in 99, I was at the Silver concert. Just this Ooh. time period was insane. Yeah, it was a great time to be a Cheap Trick fan, yeah. to be a hardcore Cheap Trick fan. Yeah. Plus the uh, access to the to the actual band itself, I mean, it was you could see them everywhere. And I didn't yeah. get to go, but Trick Fest, I think the first yeah. one was 95 and the second one was 98. Huh. What takes place at Trick Fest? Well, they did an acoustic set at one of mm-hmm. them. And, um, I mean, it's kind of like a KISS convention, I there think. Was a I Japanese never got to go. But... Band. There was a Japanese tribute band that showed up. 
wow, <laughs> Japanese cheap trick man, that's great. Yeah, exactly. I like to see that. But when but, I was in this band, American Heartbreak, we played with a female cheap trick cover band in L.A. called Cheap Chick. Yeah, 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 I know about them. Matter of fact, they're pretty good. Games again. This is another one of those songs that uh, where it talks about 
as far as I'm concerned, uh, yeah. the, the great divorce. Whoever the breakup song. Yeah. It's- very chilling in its own way now and who wrote most of the lyrics on this record i'm guessing uh, robin wrote most of them right that's hard to know they just you know robin rick and tom just get credit on all the songs yeah, all tracks by rick nielsen tom peterson robin zander except where noted and on uh carnival games jerry dale mcfadden rick you know nielsen, who that is and robert peterson. reynolds from the mavericks yeah yeah who, who is jerry yeah, you- dale mcfadden uh, well, yeah, he played both in the, from Maver- the Mavericks, yeah. Okay. But Jerry Dell McFadden also played uh, piano on a couple of uh, records from this band called Jason and the Scorchers. Right, right. Anybody who's never, if you're a Cheap Trick fan and have never heard of Jason and the Scorchers, you need to go out and find their records because that band, if you like Cheap Trick, you will love Jason and the Scorchers. That is one of the greatest bands of all time. Michael, and Mar- also, also um, Robert Reynolds, the other guy from the Mag- Mavericks, he was in Swag with Tom Peterson, you know? Uh-huh. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I checked out the Mavericks. They're you know they're a country band, but they're not like horrible contemporary country. They're more right. like a Steve Earle or Foster right. and Lloyd, Foster, you know that kind of country. Yeah, they're Jason, not bad. Jason and the Scorchers is a little bit like that, but they have a little cheap trick influence in them, and they yeah, had this guitar player. I love player Jason named, and the Scorchers. Yeah, they well, had this guys... guitar player named Warner Hodges who was like, <laughs> forget about it. The guy's a, a monster guitar player. Actually, the the reason the guys from the Mavericks uh, ended up writing these songs is because Tom moved to Nashville at this time. Yeah, and moved next door to I think Jerry Dale huh. McFadden. That's how they met, mm-hmm. and that's how they ended up writing with them. So, very cool. Yeah, they they wrote "It All Comes Back to You" with them too. Mm-hmm. Right, those two guys. By the way, can hey can can I chime in and say thank shout out to uh, friends of the Rock and Roll Geek Show who might be listening because I know a lot of people who listen to the show are also yeah, sure. fans of this show. Yeah, go for I'd it. I like to say hello to. Um, the friends of the Rock and Roll Geek Show who are listening to the Cheap Trick podcast, uh, Joy Rock and Roll, uh, Chuck Spear, the Rock and Roll Hoosier, Tim Horridgian, the Third Shift Rock and Roll Geek, and everybody else. All right, sorry about that. Man. Back to Carnival Game. I think it's a brilliant, uh, brilliant oh, song. You know, one of the best. It's just an amazing song. And yeah, like you said, Ken, for a band this deep into their career to be making music this good and this vital and just this, yeah, it's you know, it's almost unheard of, really. The, the one part of the song where it says, take your time, please lay your hand on me. Don't want to be oh, man. And also, we talked a lot on this show about Rick and his vocal his vocal additions to songs. And this song is one of the best ones ever. The, one down, one to go. Yeah, it's very John. <laughs> yeah, what is crazy he say? little Rick stuff. I love it. What, I love what it. is he exactly? I know he says one down, one, down, one, one to, to go. go. Yeah, then I don't know. <laughs> one down, one to go, you're on your own. And yeah. to me, it goes back that- to like... God, that's a divorce. There's my first marriage down the toilet. Therapy Man, with Ken th- will be back after these messages. Anyway. Anybody who listens to this song and has a problem with, and doesn't think this is a good song, they need to check their uh, selves because uh, this is one of the greatest songs ever made, in my opinion. It's wonderful. Song is so it's a tearjerker, man. If you've just broken up with your girlfriend or he's gotten a fight, you think you're a tough guy, you listen to this song and you can tell me you're not going to break down crying, man. This song is so good. 
And, and to, uh, also a little tidbit: Robin plays piano on this song. Mm-hmm. I think I got that. From Even with Jerry Del. Yeah. Huh, why? But Jerry Dale McFadden uh, was the keyboard player in this record, and he's a piano player. So yeah, I don't know. That's what it says in you know, "Reputation is a Fragile Thing." It says Robin played piano on this. So hmm. okay. Yeah, I'm not seeing that the guys from the Mavericks played on this. The, those two. Yeah, guys. I don't see it on, on the Wikipedia. He's not yeah. on there. Strange. Who's Richie Kanata? He's played piano on this record too. Yeah, I saw he's on one song. Maybe it all comes back to your. I don't. I'm not sure who he is. Oh, he played in Tommy Shaw's band, and he was in Billy Joel's band, too. He's like a session guy. Yeah, yeah. And Mark Anthony. Ugh. <laughs> he started on that guy. When I was growing up, I thought, well, Rick only played the guitar, and Robin only did this, and Tom only did that. But if you look at this, uh, it, it says that Rick played the acoustic, electric guitars, pianos, vocals, speech, speaker, speaking part, the ebo, and the electric saw. Tom Peterson played the acoustic guitar, bass, vocals, tambora, bass, viola, ebo, acoustic bass, and 12-string bass guitar. And uh, Bunny with cymbals, drums, and tambourine. And Robin is credited with acoustic, 12-string guitar, piano, vocals, slide guitar, and tipple. I don't even know what the hell that is. What's it? Typle. I don't know. Maybe it's a typo. (laughs) Who knows? But... Something uh, that was laying around the studio. <laughs> hey, look at this. It's a tipple. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, again, hooks all over the place, just heartbreaking lyrics, and it's just a hell of a song. Was this ever done live? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw them do this song several times live, yeah. for sure. Matter of fact, here's one of my favorite versions of this song live right now. I think I've seen, I saw them do every song except It All Comes Back to You from this album. Yeah, when this came out, uh, they played most of it live. They they really, and that's for those sh- couple of years. And that, and that's pretty much a sure sign that the band is not only respecting their material, but they they believe in it. They were proud of it, and they yeah, should have been. <laughs> definitely. And uh, sadly, I mean, it's common knowledge that the that Red Ant like went out of business like right after this album came out, which is kind of a bummer. But I don't think this album would have sold that well anyway. Why yeah, do you think I that mean, is? not in 1997. Yeah. Why do you think that is? I don't think it's a very commercial album, and probably for the time, it definitely wasn't a commercial album. But I still that makes me even like that makes me like it even more. For some reason, it feels like it's my own album. You know, it feels like it just belongs to me. I always say it's just too good. It was too good it's to, too to be a good. big seller. There's it just certain, seems there, that way when something is this good. You know, it, it doesn't, you know, you look at the billboard charts and it's just a bunch of garbage and then you have something of this quality and it's just ignored and that's just the way it goes. There's, to me, there's some bands that have like these defining albums that tell you, that tell a real fan, hey, this band is on this, is like at their creative peak. I think this is a cheap trick when they were like, they got their creativity like, wow, these guys are back to writing great tunes. There's certain bands like that. I can name a few, but cheap trick. This is like their, the, I guess you would call it their pivotal moment when they just became, to me, true artists. Yeah, there's a. I took a quote from Mike Hayes' book. Rick said, "This is the first album in the second half of our career." That's what Rick said about it. So. Yeah, I guess that's sense. why it was self-titled. Um, yeah, I th- I think they should have named the album. Personally, I was going to mention that <laughs> they should have named it, in my opinion. But what would you have named? Have, what should I they don't have know. Named? I mean, yeah, you know, when you look at the song titles. There isn't one that really sticks out that would have been a good album Carnival title. Game. So. Carnival game. Yeah, I mean, work. a couple of them would work all right, but... Yeah, Shelter would be fine, you know. 
I like it self-titled. It's confusing to the audience, and I like a band that, that tries to confuse well, I don't know. How hard is it to name a record? <laughs> you could come up with something. <laughs> Going along with Rick's quote that you uh, referenced, they were yeah. starting over again, as a matter yeah, of fact. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense in that respect, but... Yeah. According to the font of all wisdom and knowledge, Wikipedia, the album is referred to as Cheap Trick 2 when it is referenced on yeah. the promotional DVD that was released with the band's special one album in 2003. So, I would like to find out what went through their minds when they found out that the record label was folding. <coughs> well, who gave them the news and what did they say when they got the news? Probably, oh shit. So. <laughs> yeah, not good. <laughs> this is not good. Because they... They basically went from Epic, where they were losing their creative freedom, to they thought they had found a home with Warner, and then that fell. And then this, it was going to be commercial freedom. And I think that this is the band doing the album they wanted to do. Yeah. And it, it's a bummer because I know that the guys from Red Ant were really true fans of Cheap Trick, mm -hmm. too. You know, I'm sure the the guy who had to break the news to him was like really bummed to have to tell him that. Not only, hey, I lost my job too. Yeah. Well, and you <laughs> know, know when the <laughs> when the label folded, they had any time was scheduled to be released as the second single, and then they were going to put out Hard to Tell as a third single. So they were still going to do a push yeah. on the record, you know. As much of a push as you can do when you're a small label up yeah. ready. Right. Well, Say Goodbye got a lot of radio airplay. Yeah. On the other the hand, time. a small label can really push now because it's the only client they have sometimes sometimes you can get lost in yeah, the jungle yeah. that is the big corporation so you know uh let's talk about the cover a little bit a little bit of irony we don't see the boys on the cover we just see their instruments and instead of seeing uh toms and robins guitars on the front we see uh, Ricks and bunnies which yeah they reversed it <laughs> yeah plus the plus the logos are there so I think people read too much into the fact that they reverse the front and the back. I think it was really just a little, they, a little inside joke, maybe. Yeah, yeah kind maybe. of like we're starting over again, you know. We're in charge now. Me and Bunny and I are in charge. <laughs> or, may, well, or maybe actually Robin and Tom were in charge, which is why, you know. Well, obviously Rick's guitar is what should be on the front. <laughs> yeah. I mean, plus, if plus, you're going to put instruments, you got to put the, the five Rick was on the in, front. And Rick was in charge with before, the and uh, he was on the back, so now now Robin's in charge. <laughs> He's on the back. Well, there you go. Tree. 
that helps if you've taken lots of drugs for lots of years okay uh thank you very much thanks everybody thanks for coming thank you everybody i think robin's vocals on this record are so good i mean they're great on everything they're so heartfelt on this record it's spooky. That's how good they are. Well, the next track, uh, we discussed Mr. Lennon earlier. Uh, this this song could be a Lennon song as far as I'm concerned. And uh, more therapy with Ken. <laughs> but I lost my grandmother this last year, and I think of her when I hear this song. And I never had a good are you relationship. Crying? No, no. I probably could be, so don't, don't push me mad when I'm hot. But, uh, you know... I never knew my dad, and <laughs> and I remember when you guys ever hear John Lennon's uh, mother, mother, of course. yeah, you 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 brutal, had me. brutal, yeah, song. brutal song. You had me, but I never had you. It's scream therapy that he's doing in that song. It's yeah, like an exactly. actual therapy that he learned, where yep. you scream. Well, to it's me, therape- it's supposed to be therapeutic, and that's what he's doing in the song, actually. Yep. And Robin can do some screaming, so, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, this song to me. Uh, speaks about the hopes and the expectations that you would have not only of you know your mothers and fathers but what you're going to leave your children that are coming after you 
and it's a very serious song, very heavy song, one I can really relate to, in the same way that I can relate to Lennon's work, and it's just as raw emotionally, but it's such a subtle, soft song. If if you were to play it for somebody and they weren't listening to the words, they it would just be, well, what was that? You know, if they wouldn't even notice it. But if you sat down and really listened to this thing, again, it's just brutal. It could break a person in half. And some it's, great yeah, stuff. It's a, some it's of the a best... nice song, but yeah, it's it's too sad. It just makes me sad to listen to it. Mm -hmm. It's hard There's to listen those... to. Well, and... you know, um, Rick lost his mom in 95 and his dad in 96, and Robin lost his dad in 96. So that's exactly. really where this song was coming from. Exactly. You know? God bless him. But uh, this song has some co-writes here. Jamie Micka with Nielsen, Peterson, and Xander. So. Yeah, Jamie Micka was a friend of Rick's, and he had the original idea for the song, Rick says. And Rick said the basic idea was there, but it was buried. Hmm. And, um, and Rick added the bridge, he says. But much of it, Jamie Micka had much of the song finished, I guess, according to the book. There's I, four different versions of this on the Red Ant Sessions. Really? The song. Right. Mm -hmm. If I had a child, I would shelter it from harm. If I had a child, I would hold it in my arms. If I had a child, I would love it as my own. If I If I had a mom, I would shelter her from harm. If I had a mom, she would never lose her grace.
regret He'd be so kind If I had a dad He would tell me I was good Oh If I If I had a dad, had my dad, Shelter, the name of that song, a brand new album, Cheap Trick. Thank you. A different side of the band there. And we're going to take a break as soon as I flick a pick at Rick there. All right, yeah. yeah. Snapped you. Got you back. This is, def- this is definitely the best version. I think this song is, is extremely great. It's one of my favorite songs on the record. Very cool. And I don't <laughs> think that we would have gotten this kind of depth from them earlier on in their career. I don't think this song would have been on any other Cheap Trick record, on any earlier Cheap Trick records. You're probably right. You're probably well, right. and that's what it is about this album. Is the album is just very personal and heartfelt, and you know, I mean, look at the difference between the Flame and Shelter. <laughs> about I think I think when Cheap Trick, you know, they're working on a new record supposedly, and I think they should go back if they can. If, if anybody from Cheap Trick Camp is listening, which I, you know, maybe you are. I think they should go back and listen to this album and maybe just play along to this record. Maybe it'll give them some inspiration to write some tunes like this. Because if their next album was anything more like in this direction than the latest, I would be very, very happy. I'd fall on my knees and thank God. I mean, you you really don't get a much better album than this, period. And you know the album, I think a lot of the songs from um, the next album... A special one were written at the same time because some of them were on the Red Ant sessions. Yeah, my obsession comes from that time. And and the difference between those two albums is that's more of an uplifting album, and this this album's more of a melancholy album. Other than that, both albums can just be intertwined to me. They're both such great albums. Excellent point, Michael. Seriously, very good, very good. Well, let's move on to the next track. You let a lot of people down. stuff all over the place here <laughs> and, your- and heaven tonight which <coughs> is also Beatles. yeah yeah very much michael what are your thoughts on this one i like this song it's 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 probably the most angry song of all of them this one in eight miles low probably i like it not one of my favorite ones on the album but you know when it gets super heavy when the boom 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 yeah. ah, people, ah! 
and his vocals are insane on this on this song. So I like it. Not one of my favorites, though. I, like I said, I like the sad songs in this record the most. Yeah, but when you think about it, saying that like the worst song in this album is still the best song on some other. There's no worst songs. This is yeah. my one of my le- least favorites. Yeah. Everybody, if you if you're listening to the show, you've probably already heard this album a million times. No, you're preaching to the choir. But if you just happen to be tuned in, go back and listen to this album. Just put the headphones on and crank this album up, and you will be impressed. Absolutely. And one of one of the biggest kicks I get out of doing this show is because we are going through the podcast feed that a lot of Kiss fans are waking up to how great a band Cheap Trick is. We've sold a few um, box sets for Cheap Trick, and we've sold a few version, you, uh, copies of this album, and I'm very happy now, about that. Now, do you think cheap, Do you think fans of the Kiss podcast would like this Cheap Trick album? Hmm. Well, it depends, because I, there there's some people I know, like Dave, I know you're out there. How you doing? Uh, he fell in love with this album. He thinks this hey, album is just absolutely amazing, but... The problem with some KISS fans, and this may ruffle some feathers, but I don't really care. Well, I don't know if it's so much shallow, but they want what they want, and that's it. And people may bitch, you know, this is going to step into KISS territory, so please excuse the KISS nerdery, but um, all you Cheap Trick fans, please be patient with me. Um, A lot of bands get into a look and a classic lineup and they only want a certain sound from a band and kiss gene and paul get a lot of grief from their fans because they say they only do this certain thing well time and time again it has been proven to gene and paul that the fans only respond when kiss does this certain thing when they did the elder crickets when they did unmask pretty much crickets when they stay in that the that makeup those four makeup, those iconic makeup designs, those costumes, this sound, here you go. And you basically get a lot of dumb music as a result of that. And a lot of right, dumb Well, decisions. KISS fans, friends of the KISS podcast, uh, listen mm-hmm. to this album. Open up your minds and listen to this album. And don't be afraid to, to actually like good music. Because if you like KISS, I'm sure you probably say you like the Beatles and all that other whatever right. else. What, what do KISS fans like besides... I don't know Deep because purple, no. uh, some guy told me the other day. Some it's only Kiss. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some guy told me the other day he couldn't. He found out I was doing a Beatles uh, cast, which we aired the other day, and uh, he said that he felt that he hated the Beatles. They were the first boy band, and they brought <laughs> nothing, nothing to music. And I'm like, okay, well, so um, if it's not hard rock and poison and steroid metal or whatever the hell you want to call it, but. To me, I can't listen to that stuff anymore. Like, when I look at most of the stuff that came out in the 80s that I loved, like, it's weird because there was stuff that I loved, like The Smiths, there was stuff I loved, like The Clash, and then there was things like Poison and Anthrax and, you know, Metallica, whatever. But a lot of that stuff that's just, like, male ego posturing, I just can't take it. It just has no place for me. It has no heart. It has Mm -hmm. no soul. Do you like Anthrax's version of Big Eyes? I love Anthrax's covers of just about any darn thing, because those boys know how to deliver a cover. Well, point being, Kiss fans, listen to this album, and I think you'll like it. It's a lot better than Psycho Circus. It's better than the Vinnie Vincent Vincent Invasion. Mm -hmm. Well, Psycho Circus was right around the same time, so... Yeah. But there is... Psycho Circus, as I call it. Ouch. (laughs) 
the Beatle reference in this song? I can't think right now. Happiness uh, is a warm uh, gun. <laughs> no, uh, no, no, it is. Um, you can't do that. Yeah, little bit, little bit of happiness is a warm gun, but there's. Yeah. Um, it'll come to me. It's well, it's around that white album time. A little bit of that, uh, the hard part of. Um, remember the movie when they were they were walking the funeral, of the Peter Frampton movie. What was uh -huh. that song? Long and Winding Road, or uh, no, uh, no. The, when he ran, he blew his mind out yeah, in, in a car. car. Oh, day in the life. Day in the life. Yeah. yeah. Plus, there's also the Beatles did a song called "You Can't Do That," and Robin seems to refer to that quite a bit in his delivery of the line "You Can't Do That." So. Yeah, I love the heavy part. The you ain't seen nothing till somebody starts trouble with a gun. I love that part of yeah. this song. Uh, a good line. In the book, Bunny says. Because a lot of people think this song was about Ken Adamani, mm -hmm. but it, Bunny says, from what I've heard Rick say, it was about Robert McNamara, the guy who got us into Vietnam. He was the Secretary of Defense under Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. There so that's go. what Bunny said. It's like it's about Vietnam. So I don't know. Wow, heavy stuff. Probably my least favorite track is the next one, "Baby No More." Don't wanna be your baby no more. thoughts michael on baby no more it's it is my least favorite well it's my second to the least favorite probably it's a good song but there is but listen to about one minute and 43 seconds in when right before the solo when it goes ah ah yeah. ah yeah. and the, the and rick is playing a guitar lick right under right under uh, robin that part makes the song and the solo on this song though i think is one of rick's most shredding guitar solos of all time Listen to it. Play. You should play that part of the song. All too. right, I will do that right now. just awesome this is another one of those live in the studio songs to me it just sounds like they just let this thing rip like they stepped and bang they're going as fast as they can and getting it done yeah and we Again, all pretty, we all pretty much agree because that this is also my least favorite song in the album so well, but again no it's a really pissed lyrical, off song there's no real lyrical depth to it and uh according to the to mike hayes um, Tom, they demoed this song in like 96 with Tom Werman and it was radically different mm -hmm. but I don't think I've ever heard that so sure would like to but uh, yeah I don't know even, even in what I say is the worst song on the album it's very beatly in a lot of ways and I love it so again no bad track on this album there's not many albums you can say that about honestly at least I can't yeah it's true 
on side one of Cheap Trick's 1997 album, Cheap Trick. BJ, Michael Butler, and myself will be back soon with part two, or side two, of Cheap Trick. But until then, we're going to finish out this episode with Elliot in the Morning interviewing Robin Zander. So, enjoy this, and we'll see you on the next episode. Until then, keep cheap tricking. Connect with Elliot in the Morning on Twitter at EITM Online. Hello, Robin Zander. Elliot and Diane, how are you? I am doing well, sir. How are you? Oh, you know, fairly, uh, partly cloudy. All right, that's fine. I'll take that. That's not bad. I got to say, it's weird. I was thinking about this. I mean, for for as many years as I've been a, uh, I mean, who isn't a fan of the band and uh, playing songs? I think this is the first time I've ever spoken to you. Really? Yeah, no, I'm, trust me, I'm very excited about it. But yeah, I, I don't ever remember ever crossing paths with you. Well, listen, uh, this is cool because I don't think I've ever talked to you either. I guess so. That works out. <laughs> that works out very well. I will say this, though. I give you a ton of credit. If I had your career and your success, I would, uh, I would not be working anymore. I would just be uh, laying at home, sleeping, and uh, rolling in it. Well, you know, Elliot, I'm just too dumb to quit. That's what it really is. Uh, we're like a cheap trick, like musical glue, like super glue. You just can't get it off. You can't get it away from you. And, you know, I forget, Robin, I forget who it was that's in the uh, Robin Zander band, but I was reading something they were talking about how, you know, for, for all of you guys doing this and then, you know, whether it's whether it's Cheap Trick or, or the Robin Zander band is for you guys, like that literally is your drug and being addicted to the, the, the performance and the writing and going through the process that really you couldn't, I don't want to say exist without it, but it is your addiction. It is, and, I, and I'll tell you, you know, the barometer is if you're still having fun and being creative 
and if people still enjoy listening to it. And I think with Cheap Trick, you know, we go out every year and we tour with all these bands and, you know, Aerosmith and Def Leppard and all these big, huge bands. And, and we still go out there with the attitude like, you know, we've got to go out there and kick their ass tonight, you know. And that's, if you don't have that attitude, then I think then it's time to quit. <laughs> And now, but now, let me ask you this: When you're doing the Robin Zander band, is there is there something kind of is is there something kind of nice about when when you guys get on stage and and listen? Everybody in the band has their own history and has done their own things, but the expectation is completely different than if you're doing a cheap trick show or if. Oh if, yeah, yeah. The Robin Zander band is just sort of like a, a and you know just like hanging out and you know we we play these places and it's only during time when cheap tricks not working. Uh, we see these places and, and whoever shows up and there's a lot of, a lot of good musicians that show up, you know, and, and hang out with us and get up and jam with us. So, you know, it's more like a party than anything else. And we play all these cover songs, you know, from the sixties and seventies. And, uh, it's just to bring back some memories of when you were younger and, and when you met your first girlfriend and when you got thrown out of school and time you spent in jail and, you know, those, all those things come flooding back into your memories and, and that's what that band's all about. And um, I don't have it in front of me, but what was your last jail stint? It was uh, 1980. We were touring with Hart. <laughs> and um, we were staying in Florida at, uh, we were doing uh, Tangerine Bowl. Okay. And uh, um, I remember that night we were fooling around, and there were a bunch of us. Uh, roadies and stuff that had gone out and were real drunk and all that stuff. And, and, uh, Hart had one half the hotel and we had the other half of the hotel. Right. And there was security everywhere. And, and, um, I remember, um, uh, coming out of my room and I only had a shirt on, some leather pants. That's all I would had on. And then I heard this ruckus out there and our roadies were fighting. They were play fighting, but you got six foot seven play fighting going on there's right. a lot of loud noise you know <laughs> so so i came out there and i i tried to break it up and say look you guys we're going to get arrested and sure enough but right as i said that up come the cops out of the out of the uh elevators and i got arrested right along with everybody else <laughs> didn't you didn't you tell them i wasn't I remember, doing anything I remember the arresting officer's name was miss beaver <laughs> they, and, and i i remember pointing at her and going she she goes, don't touch me, don't touch me, and I'm going to put the cuffs on you. I said, well, I, I didn't touch you. I wouldn't touch your beaver with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> and that was it. I was in jail. <laughs> so she didn't she didn't find the same laugh in it that all of us do? <laughs> well, holy crap, I'll tell you what. But that was the last time. I haven't been arrested since. But I almost got arrested uh, in Slovenia at the border. Because I didn't have a, a Slovenian driver's license. Oh, okay. Well, that I'll that I'll push aside. That's no big deal. Hey, I no, they, they just they threatened me with gulag prison, you know. But <laughs> they, and the guy said to me, "Oh, I had my kids with me in the back seat," and they go, "How do you think your family will feel in your prison?" <laughs> Jesus. Hey, can I, uh, Robin? I want to ask you something. I was uh, uh, knowing that you were going to be on. I was I was watching some stuff, and I feel like I saw a story pop up that I wasn't familiar with. Uh, going back to the beginning of uh, of Cheap Trick, and you were talking about how I I guess you guys had gone in and and done like a like a demo or or or, or kind of recorded something, and it hadn't come out yet. And you were doing a show. I, I believe you said you were in Kansas City, and during the show, 
Gene Simmons was at the show and was just like throwing money up on stage for you guys? Oh, while you I were... know the story. The story is when, uh, in 1976, before we made a record, and uh, we played Max's Kansas City in New York City, which is a, a nightclub there. Right. And uh, there were about five people in the audience, you know. There was uh, the lead singer of the New York Dolls and uh, Wayne County and... Um, and Gene Simmons was sitting in the front row at the table. And after we finished our set, he threw a $100 bill on stage, and, and Rick picked it up and ate it. <laughs> and, and Simmons came backstage right afterwards, after we finished, and said, man, I like you guys. I want you guys to tour with us. And so that's how our first big tour came about, was because Gene Simmons gave it to us. Wow. And, uh, you know, a couple months later, we were in Canada and did a, a whole Canadian tour and part of the United States with Kiss. We went from, you know, playing in front of three people almost overnight. I was uh, I was reading something that uh, that Rick Nielsen was talking about, the 35th anniversary of uh, Budokan, and talking about how nuts it was when you guys arrived over there. Because that was, I mean, that was never really supposed to be a thing, right? Wasn't that always the deal where it was like you guys were going over there and, and, and the band was really big? But in terms of it being live from Budokan, it was never really supposed to be a massive thing, correct? Live at Budokan was only supposed to be for the Japanese audience. Now, what happened was we went over and recorded it. We didn't like the recording. We didn't like the cover. We didn't like anything about it, really. Um, so we were arguing with our, our manager about it, saying we don't want this thing to come out. And he said, don't worry. It's going to be fine. Only the Japanese audience will hear it, and they deserve it because, you know, they brought us over here. So <laughs> sure enough, when we said, okay, you know, you know it's just uh, the rest of the history. It came out in Japan, and it was imported first to uh, London, in the UK and uh, Kamikaze Yellow Vinyl as sort of a novelty. And then it went to Canada and became number one and uh, multi-platinum in Canada before it was even released in the States. And of course it was number one in Japan. And then when it was released in the States, it, it sold, uh, you know, upwards of 4 million copies. And all of a sudden we were a band that, uh, you know, we were the best band in America for a while. <laughs> so there you go. Hey, when you when you have a song like Surrender and you see that it's been covered by everybody from from Foo Fighters to Taylor Swift, is it awesome when you know that you have one of those songs that, like I said, everybody from Foo Fighters to Taylor Swift will cover? Oh, I think it's fantastic. I I love it. You know, it's the same as when I was coming up and, you know, you, you, you wear your heart on your sleeve and you can't deny your influences and, you know, with the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and the Kinks and... The Who and uh, the Hendrix and all that stuff—that's that's stuff that we did, and and we felt the same way about those bands as some people feel about us. So, and and that's the way it happens with groups. It just what what comes around kind of goes around. <laughs> hey, do you do you still keep up? Like you mentioned, like being on the road with Kiss, and and you've toured with everybody under you, you know. Any essentially every band in the world. Do you are Probably. is there um is there anybody that you're really really close with, or is it like when you run into them everything's cool, or are there a bunch of where you're like you talk to them pretty regularly? Um, well, there's a few like you know, uh, Aerosmith are friends of ours and have been for many years, um, and we talk to them regularly. And and uh, 
guys like, um, oh, I want to say, uh, let's see, like Joe Elliott is a good buddy of ours. Right. And, uh, you know, um, the guys in Foreigner we kind of came up with, uh, stuff like that. And, and you, you remain friends. I mean, if you tour for a year and a half or two years with somebody like ACDC, you become friends with them. Right. And you just hang out together, you know. You're going to the same show tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And you either get along or you don't. Now, we, we happen to be fairly easy to get along with, I think. <laughs> uh, you know, we we try not to keep our – we try to uh, have a sense of humor about things and, and you know, try to be uh, lighthearted about and not take ourselves too seriously. And I think that other bands appreciate that in us. Uh, Monday night at the Birchmere, it's the Robin Zander Band. And then some cheap trick dates, February 14th in Ridgefield, Connecticut at the Ridgefield Playhouse. February 15th in Montclair at the Wellmont Theater. Robin Zander, very nice to talk to you, sir. All right, thanks a lot. You got it. Thanks, Robin. All right, bye. And that's our show. Trick Chat is an online nonprofit audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to Cheap Trick or any of their members past or present. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes to buy it. If you enjoyed this show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying keep cheap tricking. Look, I didn't do it. Five years ago, I had no idea I'd be here. Who are you, anyway? What are you taking for? I must be dreaming. Second. 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 Listen, I'll, I'll never eat a double cheeseburger before bed again. Really. I'm telling you, I didn't do it. But if I did do it, it was an accident. Promulgating your esoteric cogitations and articulating your superficial sentimentalities, amicable philosophical and psychological observations, beware of platitudinous ponderosities. Are we really the dream police?